Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together. Good morning as we open God's Word on this Labor Day weekend. If you're visiting us today, my name is Nate Reed, and I serve as a location pastor here at Tyson's, and we're so glad to have you joining us here today. I want to invite you to turn with me not to the book of Mark, but to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today, Colossians chapter 3. It's about three-quarters of the way through the Bible, halfway through the New Testament. Uh, if you want to use the Bible that's near or under your seat, that's page 1,169. Uh, we're going to be looking at a longer passage this morning, and so to help with that, we've actually created a little note sheet for you. If you want to take notes, uh, you can find that at any of the communion tables around the room. Feel free to hop up and grab that in a pen as we prepare to get started. Um, Thinking about this text, though, I've sensed the Lord leading us to this particular passage today because I and other pastors here at Tyson's have either seen or heard from many of you that you're not convinced that following Jesus is worth it. Not convinced that it's worth it. And we can easily convince ourselves that following Jesus involves sprinkling aspects of faith on top of the lives that we've already created for ourselves. Or we might even have a self-imposed idea of what maturity in Christ actually looks like that's not consistent with God's word. This is uh, what we would call casual Christi Christianity, and we're seeing that it just doesn't work which has resulted in what many of you have shared with us. These aren't specific examples, but summarize a lot of what we hear all too often from you here at Tyson's. I hear about a husband or a wife who's watching their marriage fall apart as a result of increasing negativity and hostility in their relationship. We hear about parents who can't believe that their now adult child is walking away from the faith when many years earlier they had seen their child weeping at a retreat with arms raised in worship to Jesus. We've heard of individuals who think spiritual maturity is equated, equated with significant spiritual activity or having an all-consuming worshipable experience just between them and God. And we've heard from families that are overly stressed and tired due to overpacked schedules and pressures from society to be successful. They really want to be involved in church but just don't have time to add God on top of their already packed out lives or individuals who know a lot about the Bible, but for many years have secretly struggled with an addiction to pornography and just can't quite seem to kick the habit on their own. I could share more examples, but I believe at the core of each of them is likely a misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus and allow him to be your life. And on top of that, we're neglecting to pursue many of the things that God in his grace has given us to experience true life in him. So before we begin, I want to give you the main point of this message so that you know that we're going. And we're going to spend the rest of our time together today unpacking this sentence. This will be the first few blanks that you have there at the top of your sheet if you're taking notes. But here's where we're going. When you're saved by Jesus, he becomes your life. It's your first blank. And he gives you everything you need to live today in light of your new and eternal reality. Amen. Okay? When you're saved by Jesus, he becomes your life, the one whom your entire life is oriented around. And he gives you everything you need to live today in light of your new and eternal reality. Yes. We're going to see why he's worthy of our entire lives, as well as what he's given to us in order to live out this reality particularly as we live in a culture that's constantly trying to pull us away 
from that reality. So Colossians 3, we're going to cover verses 1 to 17. And again, this is a long passage, so we're not going to have time to cover every single detail in this passage, but let me give you just a little bit of context before we read it together. So Colossians is a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing it while he's in prison awaiting trial in Rome. You can read about that in Acts chapter 27 and 28. And it's written to a church that he's never visited, a church in a small town of Colossae. It used to be a major city, but when a new trade route was established nearby that town and it kind of passed it by, it turned into what most historians now describe as a very insignificant city. <laughs> if you want a, a little picture of how, how, one of the ways I've kind of pictured it in recent weeks, think about the town of Radiator Springs in the movie Cars, you know? <laughs> booming city. They build an interstate nearby, and then Radiator Springs just fades off into the distance. You can tell what stage of life we're in at home right now. (laughs) So that's Colossae. And the church had started as a result of Paul's earlier ministry in the town of Ephesus. So while he was there and preaching, a man named Epaphras, who was from Colossae, trusts in Jesus, and he takes the gospel back to his hometown and helps start a church. Now, Fast forward 10 years after that, while Paul is in prison, a man named Tychicus visits him and shares about how false teaching was threatening to confuse the people in the church. The culture was pressing in unbelievers and they were being tempted to return to their former way of life. Now, we don't have time to dig into what was being taught around those times, but some of the major concerns involved the denial of the necessity and deity of Jesus, hence the beautiful passage we just all recited a little bit a little bit earlier in our worship gatherings together about the deity of Jesus people were being tempted to embrace rituals mystic practices and immorality that was connected to pagan worship and Paul writes to point them back to what true life in Christ looks like and that's what brings us here to Colossians chapter 3 so I want to read the passage for us but before I do that I want to give you just a moment between you and the Lord to ask him to speak to you personally through the word, to prepare your heart to hear from him. So take a moment on your own. I'll pray and read the passage. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. You've given it to us to know and understand you, to relate with you. And I pray that you would prepare each and every one of our hearts to hear from you specifically today. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said together. Amen. Amen. So Colossians 3, 1 to 17. Let me read it for us and then we'll dive in. Paul says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices 
and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. These are such rich verses. And it can be tempting to oversimplify what Paul is saying here. Think these things, don't do these things, and then you're good, end of sermon which, if we're honest, is what many people tend to think Christianity is all about, just doing the right things, which totally misses the point. And the message Paul wrote nearly 2,000 years ago is just as relevant for us today as it was for his original readers. So going back to our main point, we said when you're saved by Jesus, he becomes your life. life. Say it with unction. He becomes your life. There you go. So let's look at why this is the case for followers of Jesus based on what we've seen in this passage. We're going to move through this pretty quickly. This is going to be that next section of blanks on your worksheet. So looking first to what Jesus has, accompli- or has accomplished for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, he has raised you to new life. It's your first blank. It comes right out of verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. When you trusted in Christ, your old self and its slavery to sin were put to death and you were made new. This is why in verse 3 it said that you died. Same idea we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Jesus freed you from your slavery to sin and he gave you a new nature that loves and seeks after the things of God. And I just have to say, this has been so evident in the amazing baptism testimonies that we've celebrated here at Tyson's in recent weeks. If you've not seen them, go back on social media and watch them. But when you come to Christ, it changes your life. Amen. And while your sin had left you standing guilty before God, he has forgiven you from your sin. See this in verse 13. It says, the Lord has forgiven you. Your sin had left you separated from God, fully deserving of his wrath. But when you trust in Jesus, you are forgiven of all your sin, the sin of your past, the sin that you have or will commit today, and all the sin of your future. Paid for it all. Why? Not because of anything that we've done, but because he took on the full penalty that we deserved. Paul actually explains this really beautifully in chapter 2, Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
Jesus has raised you to new life and forgiven you of your sin, but it doesn't stop there. Listen to what's true of you now. If you are a follower of Jesus, your life is now hidden in Christ. The word comes right out of verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You are now united to Christ and he dwells inside of you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul actually says this in chapter 1, that this is the reason for our hope. He describes it as Christ in you, the hope of glory. We'll talk about the implications of that in just a moment, but the reality is that because of this, your salvation is protected and preserved in Jesus. Amen. But keep going. You are also loved by God. Oh, yes. And you see that in these wonderful words at the beginning of verse 12. He says that you are God's chosen ones, meaning that he pursued you. He says that you are holy, meaning that he set you apart for his glory. And if it couldn't get any better, he says that you are his beloved And I want you to let this soak in for just a moment because if you're hidden in Christ, that means when God the Father looks at you, he sees you with the same delight that he looks upon his son with. Praise God for that. He loves you. And because he loves you, he doesn't leave you where you are. Keep going. You are also being renewed by God. Verse 10 says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So even though you are a new creation, God is still at work in you, forming you more and more into his image. And that will be the case until the moment that all of history is heading towards. Because right now, Jesus is alive. He is reigning in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. But he's not going to stay there. Verse 4, when Christ your life appears, which don't you love that word, when? Like this, ain't, this isn't a chance. This is a guarantee. Jesus is coming back. And we get a glimpse of what that's going to look like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of the God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And when that happens, Christian... This is what will be true of your future. You will appear with Christ in glory. You'll appear with him in glory. This comes right out of verse 4. When Christ your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Meaning, there will no longer be any need to be renewed. Your glorification will be complete. You'll no longer struggle with sin. Suffering will be no more. And best of all, you will enjoy Jesus for all of eternity. That's the great end of our faith. It's not a place not a state of being. It's not a cloud. (laughs) Rather, it's the person who's made all of this possible. It's Jesus. You'll see him face to face, and you'll enjoy perfect relationship with him for billions and billions of years. This is why Christ is worthy of your life. Like nothing else in this world can offer this. No religious leader can offer this to you except for him. It's only possible with Jesus which is where I just need to pause and ask, is Christ your life? Is Christ your life? Have you recognized your great need for his forgiveness? Have you placed your complete trust in the provision he's made for you by dying in your place? You might claim to be a Christian, but in reality, does your life actually center on him? And if you've not yet surrendered your life to Christ, you still remain under his wrath. Which means when you die, or if he returns in your lifetime, you won't appear with him in glory. 
Instead, you'll spend all of eternity separated from him in hell. But the good news of the gospel is that all of these things can be true for you today if you're willing to place your trust in him. Today. Like, don't wait on this. There is coming a time when it will be too late. So what does Paul say? He says, set your mind on these things. Think about them. And I like how the NIV translates verse 1. It actually says, set your heart on these things. Don't merely just think about them. Let them rule your heart and your affections. This is incredibly important because the activity in your life is going to be determined by what has captured your heart. The way your life looks will be determined by what you have captured in your heart. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says it this way. He says, we always love what seems desirable to us. Thus, we will only change what we love when something proves itself to be more desirable to us than what we already love. I will then always love sin in the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. Thinking about what Paul's listed here, if your heart is captivated by lust, you will crave and pursue sexual immorality. If your heart is captivated with selfishness, you will see others as a means to an end. And you will likely treat them in disrespectful and harmful ways. These are the things Paul describes as earthly in verses 5 through 9. But if your heart is captivated by Jesus, then you will now have an appetite for the things that he declares to be good. This is what we see in Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And we see some of those things listed at the beginning of verse 12. We read it earlier. He says to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, gratitude. As followers of Jesus, we're given a new desire to put these things on. In fact, the word that Paul uses in verse 10 and 12 literally means to clothe yourself in these things. It carries the idea of sinking back into a garment. Be clothed in a new self that Christ has made possible for you. But as every follower of Jesus has experienced, is this always easy? No, it's not. In fact, it's a daily battle as the things of this world are constantly tempting us to return to our old selves. And not only that, but unmet expectations, suffering, and difficult circumstances can cause us to doubt God's goodness and his purposes. It's true for us, certainly true of the Colossian church. They were tempted to indulge in the sexual immorality that the culture around them deemed acceptable. False teachers were also trying to convince them, convince them that spiritualism was found in rituals. And Paul didn't realize how timely this letter would actually be for this specific church. Because about a year or so later, after this letter was written, a massive earthquake would level the entire city of Colossae, and it would never be rebuilt again. Like, it's hard to trust the goodness of God when you, everything you have is in ruins. But thankfully, God has given us everything we need to thrive, even in the face of sin and suffering. Everything. So here's what I want to do. 
I want to point out four things that God provides to his people to help us put on the new self. And then I'll offer a brief pastoral encouragement with each of them. So this is that last set of blanks on your worksheet there. What has God provided to help you put on your new self? Well, number one, he's provided us with the power of God. The power of God, specifically through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we talked about this earlier when we explored what Paul meant in verse three by being hidden in Christ. This is Christ in you. And he alludes to the same idea at the end of verse 11 when he says, Christ is all and in all. As a follower of Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And I use the word walk intentionally because Paul uses that word often in his writings. He'll use it four times in this letter to the Colossian church. And he uses it elsewhere to make the exact same point. In fact, we've already seen the list of things that Paul describes as, uh, Paul, Paul lists out that God has declared to be good. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, and gratitude. What list does this sound familiar to elsewhere in the New Testament? Yes, I heard it. The fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the only way I can remember it. No, no, don't, you don't have to give me a sympathy clap. I'm a drummer, not a singer. I recognize that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But look what Paul says just before giving that list. Galatians 5, verse 16, he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Power of the Holy Spirit enables you to walk in holiness. Now, mind you, this isn't a passive activity for us, though. We don't just kind of sit back and allow these things just to happen. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us that we actually can quench the Spirit to resist Him by choosing not to walk in His ways. We have to prayerfully act, ask for His help and follow Him in obedience. So this is what I want to encourage you to do first. First encouragement for you today, walk in the power of God. Walk in the power of God. That he's given to you through the indwelling spirit. We've been given the power of God to do this. And we've also been given, number two, the promises of God. Amen. The promises of God. Look specifically at verse 16 with me. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. God has given us the full counsel of his word, the Old and New Testament, God's written revelation to show us that he is always faithful to keep his promises. He's given that to us. And Paul says, let that word dwell within you richly. Be saturated by it. Don't just read it, digest it, internalize it, study it, remember it. Why? Because we're prone to forget it. Mike told us this last week. He said, sometimes it's difficult to believe God's promises. Life is going to happen, and you will be tempted to doubt God's goodness. But if you've written his word on your heart, it will serve you well. Amen. Serve you well. And I love how Paul models this all through Colossians chapter 3. Many of the words and phrases he uses in this section come straight out of the Old Testament. We don't have time to do, show all of them, but let me just show you a few examples. In verse 3, when he says hidden in Christ, he's actually quoting from Psalm 27, verse 5, which says, For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. Amen. 
The idea of clothing oneself comes right out of Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. And even in verse 12, when, you, when it says that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, this is language that God often uses throughout the Old Testament to describe his people. You can check out Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8, to see a great example of that. His writing was saturated with the word. Do you know why? Because he knew it. Because he knew it. So just as Paul modeled for us, I want to encourage you in the same way. Saturate your mind with God's word. Saturate your mind with God's word. When you're tempted to sin, you need God's, God's word to remind you that God has given you everything you need to fight that temptation. Amen. In fact, just as a side note, when Tychicus delivered the letter of Colossians, he was also likely carrying the letter of Ephesians with him, which at the end talks about the armor of God. All that armor is defensive except for one piece. One piece is meant to be used to fight. It is the sword of the spirit, which is called what? the word of God. He's given us everything we need to fight temptation. When you walk through difficult circumstances, you need God's word to remind you that he is with you and he is your help. Our elder chairman, Chuck Hollingsworth, recently shared this story. It's a true story about American POWs who were captured during the Vietnam War, told about how they were kept separate in dark and filthy cells at Hanoi Hilton for many years, and in between interrogations, they were tortured in ways that were only described as painful, emaciating, and inhumane. But over the course of that time, the prisoners came up with a way to communicate with each other using a tap code by tapping charcoal on the walls. Like They came up with a way to communicate with each other. And as soon as this code was established and they knew it, do you know how they used that code to encourage each other? They tried to compile as many Bible passages as they could from memory to share with each other. And by the time of their release, they were able to collectively assemble from memory through tapping, mind you, all of Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, all of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, and many of the Psalms. One of the prisoners, prisoners later shared how these verses deepened their trust in the Lord during an incredibly dark time. Like, is God's word written on your heart? Like, I want to encourage you to make God's word a priority this fall. And if you don't know where to start, jump into our Bible reading plan today. You can find copies of that at the Welcome Center or mcclainbible.org slash Bible reading plan. Love to invite you just to jump in and read the word with us as a church family this fall. But when you have the power of God and the promises of God, then God's third provision only makes sense. Number three, the peace of God. The peace of God. We read that together in Colossians 1 earlier. It says in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called. When you set your mind on what has Christ has freed you from and saved you to, Amen. the resulting posture of our heart is peace. Your salvation is secure. Your end is guaranteed. You will appear with Christ. Amen. And even when we fall and revert back to our old selves in sin, God doesn't meet us with rejection. He meets us with grace. Amen. Like this changes how we live and how we respond in facing difficulty or suffering in our lives. 
Uh, this summer, I read uh, a few different missionary biographies, and I just recently finished reading the biography of Hudson Taylor. He was a faithful missionary in the 19th century, most known for taking the gospel into the heart of China. And the Lord used him over 54 years of ministry to reach over 20,000 people directly in his lifetime, but hundreds of thousands more as his work continues even to this day. He's helped raise up thousands of other missionaries, started a missions organization that even still exists to this day. But he encountered incredible difficulty during that time. Things like debilitating illnesses, the loss of loved ones. He lost his wife and five of their nine children throughout that time. They faced constant attack from locals and government officials who greatly opposed the gospel. But his biographer notes that the secret of his strength in difficulty was resting in the peace of God. He writes this. One evangelist named Mr. George Nichol was with him, Hudson, on one occasion when some letters were delivered bringing news of serious rioting in two of the older stations of the mission. Thinking that Mr. Taylor might wish to be alone, the younger man was about to withdraw when, to his surprise, Hudson began to whistle. It was the soft refrain from one of his favorite hymns. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am founding, finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. And turning back, Mr. Nichol could not help but exclaim, how can you whistle when our friends are in so much danger? Would you have me anxious and troubled, was Hudson's quiet reply. That would not help them and would certainly incapacitate me for my work of prayer. I just have to roll the burden on the Lord. His biographer would go on to say that day and night, this was his secret, just to roll the burden on the Lord. He actually says how this annoyed his family in some sense too. He had learned that for him only one life was possible, just that blessed life of resting and rejoicing in the Lord under all circumstances, trusting him in difficulties, inward and outward, great and small. This is what it means to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. This is Philippians 4, words that Paul would write while he himself was in prison. Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the what? Peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here's my encouragement to you based on this. Rest in God's perfect peace. Rest in his perfect peace. You can trust him in all things because he has declared your end and no one can take that from you. Let that cultivate peace in your heart. Now the last thing that God provides us with might surprise you, but you just can't miss it when you read through this passage. And I'm convinced it's the one that we're most tempted to think that we don't need out of all these things. So he's given us the power of God, the promises of God, the peace of God. But in order to put on the new self, God provides us also with number four, the people of God. Amen. People of God. Other followers of Jesus. God has provided you and me to be a means to help us put on the new self. Now remember, when Colossians was written, it wasn't a letter written into an individual was written to a church, a group of people that were committed to the gospel and committed to each other. Like every time Paul says you in these verses, it's plural. He's not saying you as an individual, but it's a good old southern (laughs) y'all. 
He'll use the term one another multiple times in these verses, which is a side note. Whenever you see the phrase one another in the New Testament, it's not giving you general instructions on how to interact with any person that comes across your way. It could be helpful, but these are specific commands for how Christians are to interact with other Christians, primarily in the context of the local church. This is what we're called to do. And when you look at those things listed in verses 12 to 16, they're all actions that are directed towards other people. I'm going to read them again just so that you can see this slowly. Starting in verse 12, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, that sensitivity towards those in need, kindness, having a sweet disposition towards others, humility, meekness, like meaning gentleness, not behaving harshly, and patience, which means long-suffering. That actually plays out in the next two examples he gives us. Bearing with one another, which literally means putting up with and supporting others even when it's difficult. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, meaning benevolent love, doing what is best for the other person which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Paul's using the bo- this term, the body, as analogy for the church. We're actually going to see that in our Bible reading in 1 Corinthians this week. Something to look for as you dive into the reading plan this fall. And then he says, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Again, the you here is plural. And how do we do that? teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, speaking the truth and love to each other, and by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, which shows us why corporate worship is so important. And I'll just mention this. I know many of you are likely watching online or will listen to this later this week due to holiday travel, but if you're physically able to attend worship in person and are continuing to settle for watching online, you are missing out on one of God's primary means of helping you put on the new self. You miss out on the blessing that you get to enjoy when you gather with God's people to sing the word and see the word modeled through the elements or the ordinances. I encourage you to come back and join us. And when you look at this list, you realize that each of these encouragements are best experienced with others. Mm -hmm. When you are in community with other believers, you rejoice when you see the power of God at work in their lives. It encourages you so much. When you're in community with other believers, you have others who can remind you of the promises of God when things are difficult. And by the way, you can do that for them too. Amen. And when you're in community with other believers, you have people who are willing to pray for you and help you bear those burdens, which brings incredible peace in your life. Yes. Like, don't you want others in your life that are willing to care for you this way? Yes. This is what we all long for. Yes. And this is what God's designed his church to do. Amen. And the key to all of this is found in one of the words that we kind of breezed past in verse 12. So it's right in the middle of all these, these, these encouragements. Humility. Which simply means having a realistic view of ourselves. Recognizing that we 
all fall short at times. We've all got blind spots, and we're not always going to see the sin in our lives. And as a spirit-filled Christian, you are equipped and commanded to lovingly help others see when they are not putting on the new self. Now, that's not to say that there's not times when we don't need pastors, counselors, or even God's common grace and medicine to help us when there's significant struggle or need. But I think we might often be too quick to run to that when more often than not, through the constant up and ups and downs of life, all we need is another spirit-filled Christian equipped with the word of God who can lovingly and gently point out the sin in our lives and walk with us in those struggles. Amen. So God has designed you for. In fact, Alfred Poirier, he's an author and counselor, said it so well in his article titled The Cross and Criticism. He describes what our responses should be like when someone points out that we're reverting back to our old self. Listen to this and tell me if this is how you respond when someone points out sin in your life. He says, this is how we should respond. You have not discovered a fraction of my guilt. I thank you for your corrections. They are a blessing and a kindness to me. For even when they are wrong or misplaced, they remind me of my true faults and sins for which my Lord and Savior paid dearly when he went to the cross for me. And I want to hear where your criticisms are valid. Is that how you respond to criticism in your life? (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. That's hard for me too. Just ask my wife. Like, I'm not great at this either. But as a follower of Jesus, we must humbly acknowledge that we oftentimes fall short. In fact, the more and more you grow in likeness to Christ, the more and more you realize how much we fall short. So if God has designed his church to function in this way, then my last encouragement to you today is this. Pursue the people of God. Pursue God's people. You were designed for community. This idea of it's just me and Jesus is found nowhere in the Bible. It's not in here. And this is why we encourage every member of our church to be connected to a church group where you can have others around you in your life to help care for you like a family, to help you grow to become more like Jesus, and then together be on a mission, making disciples in our city and beyond. If you've not yet joined a church group, you can either go to mclanbible.org slash churchgroups and see all of the open groups we have this fall or just head to the Welcome Center after the service and say, I want to be in a group. I want to be in a group. Help me get in a group. I can't tell you how much of an encouragement and joy our church group has been for my family and me. You need this in your life. And Jesus has made all of these things possible to us through his life, his death, his resurrection, and all of it will be fully realized when he returns in glory. Amen. So in light of that, walk in his power. Saturate yourself with his promises. Rest in his peace and pursue his people. This is a picture of what true maturity in Christ looks like. A growing delight in pursuit of these things. So coming back to where we started. When you're saved by Jesus, he becomes your life. And he gives you everything you need to live today in light of your new and eternal reality. So as we prepare to close, I want to give you a moment just to reflect on two questions. First, what would you say is at the center of your life? Does Jesus have your heart? 
or is it captivated by something other than him? If you were to step back and look at how you spend your time, spend your money, see what occupies your thought life, what would that reveal about what is at the center of your life? Or maybe think about it this way. What one thing in your life, if it was taken away, would cause you to fall completely apart? When you think about that, and then regarding these encouragements we walk through, which of them are most absent in your life right now? Or what might you need to prioritize this week in order to let Christ be your life? I want you to take some time to prayerfully consider that. You might even take this note sheet, flip it over, and write out a prayer based on what we've done today. I've found that writing out prayers often helps us articulate and stay focused in times like this. And then I'll also just mention this too. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask you, what is keeping you from making Jesus the center of your life? What's keeping you from that? Because he's made all of these things available for you today if you're willing to accept them. I pray that you'll be willing to do that. I invite him to, invite you to let him be your life today. So let me give you a moment on your own just to reflect and pray through those questions and I'll come back and close us as we prepare to sing and take the Lord's Supper. Go ahead and take a moment on your own.
Lord Jesus, we confess that we are so prone to give our hearts to other things. We've sought satisfaction and worth and identity and things apart from you, and we recognize it never satisfies. We want to be satisfied in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to show us things this week that have captivated our hearts so we can put them to death and put on the new self using those means of grace that you've provided to us. God, I'm so thankful for the ways you've used this passage this past week to identify areas of sin in my own life. And I pray that that would be the case for us as a church family today as well. Help us to know that you've given us everything we need to walk in your power, to behold your promises, to have your perfect peace, and to invest in and encourage and serve others around us in the local church. In light of this word, God, I just want to pray the same prayer that Paul prayed at the beginning of his letter to the Colossians, starting in verse 9, that, Father, you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner worthy of you and be fully pleasing to you. You would bear fruit in every good work and increase us in the knowledge of you. Pray that you would strengthen us with all power, particularly those that are walking through difficult times right now, according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Help us to give thanks to you who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of your saints in light because you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. All glory be to your name, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for making this reality possible for us. And we look forward to the day when we will get to see you face to face. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray it. And all God's children said together, amen. amen.